Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, to the saints at Ephesus. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly places with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. That's how Paul begins his letter to the church at Ephesus. He lays out the foundation as to what he has in mind, what he has learned of God and what God has in mind for God's children. We spent the first three weeks of the study of Ephesus, of Ephesians, looking at the foundation that Paul was laying, a theological foundation for all that is yet to come. And chapter 1 and chapter 2 and chapter 3, and he laid it out. He said, this is the theological basis on which you live life, by which you live life. And all the things that are yet to come have to be built upon this foundation. That's why Paul laid it out in such a way. He follows the same pattern, by the way, in the letter to the Colossians as well. First, the theological foundation. First, the understanding who God is, who we are, what he has done. And now, what should our response be? Recently, I was talking to a man who's a new believer in Christ. Just for a little over a year now. And it's always fun. I love talking to new believers because they they have such insight into things that we just look at and we say, yeah, that's the way it is. And he, he came to me, and the first thing he said, you know, I, I'm, he said, I'm, I'm pretty distressed about something that someone told me. I'm pretty distressed about a statistic that I, that I heard in this Bible study I attend. And, and he said that this statistic seemed to indicate that Christians have the same moral problems and the same issues arise in their lives as outside the church. And he said, how can that be? How can the divorce rate within the church be the same as that outside? How can the rate of people falling into sin be the same on the outside as on the inside? What's, what's the problem? And he really was intense about this. He wanted to know, why is it this way? What's the deal? How can it be? He understands that he, he was in darkness and he was seeking for the light and, and he found it and he's so excited. And then he looks around and he said, and this is it? It's the same inside as outside? What's the problem? What's the problem? Paul is addressing this in this fourth chapter of Ephesians. And if you would turn there with me to Ephesians chapter 4, Paul begins reminding us that he is a prisoner for the Lord. And he notices a prisoner for the Lord. And he said, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. I want to stop there as we look at this. Paul starts out and he says, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Walk in such a way that you are worthy of the high calling. Remember, God chose you before the foundation of the world to be holy 
in his sight, holy and blameless in his sight. He was saying, this is how you're supposed to live. This is what's supposed to come of being chosen by God. This is what's supposed to happen when you're adopted into God's family. You become his child and you walk day by day by day. Now, we've had this treasure chest here because as I think about the the book of Ephesians, it's just filled with all kinds of treasures. There's so much that could be illustrated from it. And when I think about Paul saying, walk worthy, this stick came to mind. Uh, This is one that a friend of my father's made for him as he was ill. It's used for a cane. It's solid. It's not too pretty. It's very functional. And as I think of someone walking worthy, I think of someone walking with a walking stick or maybe a hiking stick or someone out in the journey of life. When you walk, it's one step at a time. You do this today. You make this choice at this moment. You make this choice at that moment. You choose to live righteously. You choose to live holy and blameless in the sight of God. You, you want to live in such a way as to honor God. And so Paul wrote to this church, and he said, walk worthy, walk worthy of the calling. If you are a child of God today, you have been called by him. You've been called to live in a certain way. You've been called to be a certain kind of person. And you can't skirt around the edges of that. You can't play fast and loose with that. You are called, you are called to walk worthy. To walk worthy. And how does it, what does that look like? Well, he says, first of all, you should walk in humility and gentleness with patience. Humility, gentleness, and patience. Humility is one of those difficult things. You work on it, and as soon as you think you've got it nailed down, you realize you just lost it. But it, is, it has more to do with our relationship and how you measure yourself against other people. We all tend to do that. And Paul says, walk in humility. And he said to the church, in, uh, to the Philippian church, he said this, do, not, do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. And he kind of captured the essence of humility there. We live in the world where everybody struts about, and I'm this, and I'm that. And Paul says, walk in such a way in relationship to others that you count them as more significant than yourself. And then he says, not only humility, but gentleness. Gentleness is not the spirit of our age. You just have to watch the previews for the action movies to know that gentleness is not the spirit of our age. It's blow it up, get it out of the way, you know, push it off the cliff, it's do whatever you have to do, make as much noise as you can. Gentleness is not the spirit of our age, but it is the way of God. It is the way of God in the hearts of his people. Gentleness is named by Paul in the book of Galatians as one of the fruits of the Spirit. It is something that shows itself, especially in the tough times. It shows itself. Gentleness is not weakness. Some translations translate this word meekness. And we have this picture in our mind of someone who is meek as, as someone who is so mild-mannered that the smallest breeze will knock him down. Um, that's not the picture here. The description of gentleness is who Jesus was. He was gentle. He was gentle. Now, the gentleness of Jesus 
is power under control. Jesus had the power of God at hand. And he could have done anything he wanted to respond to people. And people were not kind to Jesus. They were rather brutal in some cases. And ultimately, they executed him. I always think about this when I think about gentleness. And I think about the time when they came to arrest Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. And these armed soldiers came to get him. And they said, who are you looking for? And they told him, Jesus of Nazareth. And he said, I am. And when he just said those two words, these soldiers fell to the ground. The power was unleashed. It leaked out. And it could have leaked out at any time prior to this. Gentleness is power under control. It is managed. The third thing that Paul says is that we uh, are to walk in patience with one another. Literally, this word means long-tempered, as opposed to being short-tempered. Living among believers requires, requires long-temperedness because we're always rubbing against one another. I always remember a little couplet that Warren Wiersbe said a few years ago, and quite a few years ago now, and it just always kind of captured the essence of this. He said, to live above with saints we love, oh, that will be glory. To live below with saints we know, that's a different story. It requires patience. It requires patience to live day to day to day. Now, Paul then turns his attention to the method in which is to be, this is to be carried out, these three traits, the humility, gentleness, and patience, uh, with all of these things, bearing with one another in love. Bearing with one another in love is how this is to be carried out. Um, especially tolerating one another's quirks. Uh, there's the title of a book that always stands out in my mind when I think about this is everyone's normal until you get to know them. And that's who we are. We all have our oddities. He also says that uh, we not only are to bear with one another in love, uh, but we are to be eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. We are to be eager to do it. Now, we do not make this unity. God does this. The unity of the Spirit already exists. God has done it because he has placed his same Spirit in every believer. And so there is a unity there. It's not something we have to fabricate. We don't have to work on that. God has done that. What we have to do is to maintain the unity of the Spirit, as it says in the bond of peace. Maintaining is the work. It's like marriage. Uh, they, I, I've never met a young couple about to be married who weren't in love. I mean, they're love. And no problem is too great for them. It doesn't matter. No money, no problem. No job, no problem. No house, no problem. No car, nothing, no problem. We're in love. But then they get married. And they discover the maintaining is work. It's the maintaining. She does this. He does that. Who am I married? What kind of a screwball is this? The maintaining is the work. It always is the labor. It always is the work. So you put your energy into building up. Then Paul goes and he lists seven unifying elements of saints. Just rapid fire here. Most of them introduced by the word one to emphasize 
that it's God who does this. One body. There's only one body of believers. There's not 4,900 or 1,000 different kinds of bodies of Christ. There's only one body of believers. Only one. Paul loves this image of the human body as, as God's design and, and how it works together with all the differences in it. And in 1 Corinthians, he explores that further. One body. One spirit. Only one Holy Spirit. One Holy Spirit in every believer. The same Holy Spirit in every believer. One hope. That is one hope of heaven through our Lord Jesus. Remember in chapter 1, Paul said that you were sealed by the Holy Spirit of promise. You were sealed. That's your hope. That's your certainty. That's your guarantee of heaven. One Lord, of course, is talking about the Lord Jesus. One faith. It does not not matter what the denominational label is if saving faith is the foundation. Uh, This is the thing that will shock many people on arriving in heaven. They will discover that some people that they put a lot of energy into opposing will be sharing heaven with them. I think that will shock some people. He's here. But also, it will surprise people as to who is not there. Because there is only one faith. And only one entry into heaven. It's the narrow way. It's the way from trusting in Jesus Christ alone as your Savior. There's nothing you can add to that. There's no work you can do to add to it. There's only one way. You might say the words. Jesus said, many of you will say, Lord, Lord. But he said, in that day, I'll look at you and say, I never knew you. There's only one faith that saves, only one way of believing. One baptism, of course, this is not, I don't believe, teaching at all about water baptism and a method of baptism, but one baptism of the Holy Spirit. You are baptized, washed in the Holy Spirit, immersed in the Holy Spirit when you trust in Christ. It's all done at one time. And then lastly, one God and Father of all. And so here we have Paul ticking off the Trinity, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit all at work. Although it's not called by that name, the triune God is shown to be here. And then we come to verse 7. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Because you read this list and you say, how can I do this? How can I be that person? And Paul says the answer is grace. God gives you grace. He enables you according to his ability and according to his store. You've been given everything necessary to live this impossible life. And it is with the measure of Christ's gifts. How big is this gift of grace? Well, how limited are the resources of Jesus? What are the boundaries? And once you've answered that question, you know that there is no ending to what he has available to him to give you. Now, as part of this resurrection Uh, celebration, the celebration of being in Christ, Paul then continues. He says, therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. Um, Paul is not actually quoting a passage here. This is kind of a combination of thoughts from Psalm 68. And it says here, he gave gifts to men. He gave gifts to men. It says now that in verse 9 is kind of an aside. Paul 
this thought came to his mind and he wants to follow this just for a couple of sentences here. He says, in saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he also descended first into the lower parts of the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. Jesus came from heaven to earth. He descended. In order to go up, he came down. He came from heaven to earth. And of course, ultimately, it says he was put in the earth, and that was when he was buried. He was put into the earth. And so here's this thought of Jesus sparing no expense, coming from heaven to earth. And he gave gifts, it says, to men. He gave gifts to men. Uh, This is kind of a neat picture. He gave gifts to men because Paul was writing to a church in a Roman city, the city of Ephesus, and they they understood exactly what he was talking about here. The picture is of a military general, a victorious Roman general, riding through town. And behind him are not those he conquered, as was typical, but Paul seems to describe a different scene, that behind this victorious general are all those who follow him, all those, his army, his hosts that believe in him and follow him. And they're being cheered by one another as they walk along. And the general is giving out gifts. He's giving out gifts. He's celebrating. This is the day. We did it. Victory is won. And he's giving out gifts. And of course, that's exactly what Jesus did in the resurrection. It says he gave gifts to men. Every child of God receives a gift or gifts from the Holy Spirit. It's a celebration of your spiritual birthday. It's what God loves to do. It's what he wants to share with each and every one of his children. And so he gave gifts to men. Now, we come down to verse 11, and it says he gave the apostles the same thought of gifts. He gave the apostles, he gave the prophets, he gave the evangelists, he gave the pastors and teachers. Four groups of people here that he gave. Not only is he talking here about spiritual giftedness, which he further explores in Romans and also in 1 Corinthians, but we also find that Paul not only gave those kind of gifts to individuals, but he also gave people to the church. He chose people. Not everyone was chosen to be an apostle. Not everyone was chosen to be a prophet or an evangelist. God chooses. Not everyone is chosen to be a pastor-teacher. And then this, there's some discussion as to what this means, whether pastor-teacher should be two separate people, or it seems to be that there's a combination in the same person, that the shepherding and teaching is the same, uh, the same person, is, is embodied in the same person. And he gave these. And that's why in churches... You find that God calls people to lead. He calls people to positions. God does this. Um, I I love a quote. I've always taken comfort in this quote from A.W. Tozer. I don't have the quote even here in front of me, but it's something to the effect of that when God chooses a man for the ministry, he always drags them kicking and screaming into the ministry. And there's some truth in that. That God does the choosing, God does the calling. And so the gifts are though in the form of people as well as spiritual giftedness. The purpose of the gifts of these people, Paul lays it out. He says, verse 12, to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ. It is the job of these people to build up the body of Christ, to equip them. In other words, to train, 
A church is always going to be a training ground. It's always going to be a place where you get all kinds of experience in dealing with other people, in caring, reaching out to the world around us. How do you do that? What do you say? How do we most effectively care for the world that God has put us in? This is the training ground. This is the boot camp for the works of ministry that God has called us all to. Notice it says that Paul says that we are to equip the saints. To equip the saints. Now, hopefully you have a biblical understanding, a New Testament understanding of this word saint. When Paul says saints, he's not talking about plaster images of a person. He's talking about living bodies, living, breathing bodies. He's talking about people, men and women, chosen by him, who trust in his son Jesus, who become his child. They become, you become, saints. So it's very appropriate in some in, in every case if you are a child of God today and you need to think carefully about this but you need to think biblically about this that you could put in front of your name the word saint saint maribel saint jose you you've got the calling of God he sees you as one of his called out ones one of his saints you're not a plaster image You're a living person that God has called to be set aside, as he saw in chapter 1, to be holy and blameless in his sight. Saint is someone set apart for God and set apart to God. When God's people do God's work, the church is built up, and that's what Paul continues at the end of this. He says that... um, Verse 13, until we all attain to the unity of the, spirit, of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. In other words, spiritual maturity is the goal of every believer. That's what God wants for you. That's why you're in a church, to continually grow in Him. So that we may no longer be children tossed about by every wind of doctrine. In other words, you turn on the television set and someone is saying that this is true and you say to yourself, is it true? And you get out your Bible, or maybe you know this, hopefully, and you say, no, that's not what God says. That's not the way it is. You measure this against the Word of God. Equipping. Maturity. Not tossed about by every wind of doctrine. Someone says, well, this is what you're supposed to do. And the question is, what does God say I'm supposed to do? This is what you're supposed to be. Well, what does God say I'm supposed to be? It's the calling to maturity that God has given you so you're not blown about by all these trends by human cunning and by craftiness and deceitful schemes rather verse 15 speaking the truth in love we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped when each part is working properly makes the body grow so that it builds up itself in love Paul is kind of getting the picture of a building here and he says you've got doors you've got windows you've got floors you've got walls you've got ceilings you've got the communication system you've got all of these things and every church is filled with those people who have been gifted to be all these different parts and when the parts work together it's a beautiful thing It's a beautiful thing, all the parts working together and functioning to build up God's kingdom. Well then, he emphasizes these words. The goal of spiritual training is unity and maturity. Grow up. Uh, If you're a spiritual baby, you know it because you're ignorant or confused about doctrine. Do you know why you believe? What you believe? 
If not, you need to grow up. You need to study it. If you keep falling for the glamour boys who put on a great spiritual show but can't settle down, but you just can't settle down in a church, you need to grow up. It's time. He warns us against cunning craftiness, and Paul talks in other places about those who seem to, to use spiritual things to fill their butt, bellies, their stomachs. They're just out to make a good living. And we've been exposed, unfortunately, to televangelists and others who have been uh, dishonest and deceitful in who they really are and why they're doing what they're doing. And Paul says, speak the truth in love. I know people who do not speak the truth at all. I also know some people who speak the truth, but when they do, it's like getting punched in the face with a sledgehammer. I mean, it's hard. I also know people who speak the truth in love, and it hurts when they do it, but on the other side of it, it heals. Paul is talking about being that third kind of person. Speaking the truth in love is how we grow up. Now, the next part of this chapter, the last part, Paul says, Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. No longer walking in futility. Futility. It means pursuing things that go nowhere. It means working really, really hard to accomplish nothing, ultimately. Futility. It's putting out energy that goes nowhere. And Paul says, don't do it. Don't live that way. He says, no longer walk, remember walking, we're walking day by day by day, walking with God, one step at a time. No longer walk in the futility the way you used to do it. The Gentiles, he's talking about those outside of the faith, are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardness of their hearts. They become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you learned Christ. In Corinthians, to the Corinthians, he said, such were some of you. You were like that. If you're an honest Christian, you'll say that you once were such a person. Those were the days of futility, before Christ, those were the days of ignorance about eternal truth. Those were the days of distance from God because of hard hearts. Those were the days of callous souls, resistant to the imploring love of God. Those were the days of sensual abandon. If it feels good, do it. Paul is saying, you don't live in those days any longer. You've been purchased. That's not the way you learned about Christ, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus. Put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to, be, and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Put off your old self. The old self is this shirt. It's what I was. It's who I was. You were bought with a price. Put it off. Put off your old self. Make a choice to do it. Don't hope it happens someday. Don't hope that someday you stumble into living like a Christian, as God describes it. Choose it. Put it off. Nothing to do with it. But he says also then, put on. 
a different way of life. Put it on the way you put on clothing. Be different. Walk differently. Be differently. Put it on. Choose to put it on. Don't hope that it somehow happens someday. The Spirit of God is willing in you, but He won't overrule you. Walk with a changed heart. If anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. It has to show up in your walk day by day by day. You have to walk with a changed heart. At the end of this chapter, Paul just wraps it up. He says, replace truth, uh, replace lies with truth. I think all of us know that there was a time, and maybe unfortunately is, that we lie to cover our carelessness. Lying is living in a fabricated world, and Paul says, give it up. Give up the lies. Uh, he said to get angry, but don't sin. And the way you do that is, he doesn't say anger is sin. He said, when you get angry, care for it. Deal with it. He says, replace labor. Replace theft with labor. You used to live for yourself. You know, the thing that amazes me about, about a thief is that a thief works really hard to avoid work. I don't understand that. A Christian works hard to provide for his own needs and have a surplus to care for others in need. Verse 29, um, he, he says, Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such is good for building up. If you've got a potty mouth, clean it out. Do something about it. You can't go on saying that, that you're following God and talk like a sewer. And then in verse 30, he says, don't grieve the Holy Spirit. Grieve the Holy Spirit is persisting in behavior that works against everything that God wants. Change it. Change it. And then he kind of sums it up in verse 31. He pulls all this together. He says, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. All these things. Just get them out. Clean house. And the contrast is be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. All of those things. So the question that each of us constantly has to ask is, how am I walking? What's my methodology? How am I walking today? How will I walk tomorrow? Will I walk as a child of God? Will I live as a child of God? What are you going to do with your understanding of who God made you to be now? Are you going to put on the new self that God makes available to you? Or are you going to persist in just being cool the way you used to be? We're going to close with a song of praise, and as we do that, kind of a challenge as well. Um, we're going to give you the opportunity to be prayed for. If someone, if you came with a burden or a need on this Mother's Day,